The psalmist tells us that God's words are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace, purified seven times. And so if you have your Bible this morning, and I hope you do, please turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 21 through 22 this morning of 1 Peter chapter 3, which concludes a section of scripture that I've titled for us as a church, Our Glorious Share in Christ. See, as sinners that have been redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus, we've taken on a unique identity in this life, a unique identity of elect exiles, as those who have been chosen by God and yet will experience increasing rejection by this world. And that unique identity that we've received is actually what God uses to draw others to himself. See, ever since chapter 2, verse 12, Peter's been teaching us that as we live in this world and as we respond to suffering in a Christ-reflecting, grace-reflecting way, we demonstrate the spirit and the life of Jesus Christ himself and are powerfully used by God to attract others to himself. But Peter makes it very clear that the only way that we will ever respond to suffering rightly in a God-honoring way is if we become absolutely convinced of the truth that was recorded for us back in verse 17 of chapter 3, that it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Now, I don't want you to overlook something very important that's there in verse 17. I want you to notice this. I want you to notice the inevitability of suffering in the life of a believer. The inevitability. Peter says that we as believers will suffer. The only choice that we as followers of Jesus Christ have is whether we will suffer for doing what is good or whether we will suffer for doing what is evil. But what we don't have a choice in is whether we will suffer as those who have been joined to Christ. That's locked in. That is inevitable. That will happen. We as those joined to Jesus will suffer. And this reality... That suffering is unavoidable for a follower of Christ is something that Peter, our author, knew intimately well. I want you to remember that at the end of the Gospel of John, as Jesus, after Jesus rises from the dead, he tells Peter in John chapter 21, verses 18 through 19, that when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show what kind of death Peter was to glorify God. And according to church tradition, that is exactly how Peter died, with his hands stretched out as he was crucified upside down in Nero's gardens. So Peter knew from the very beginning that he was not going to live to a ripe old age nor experience a life of ease and comfort. He knew that he was going to suffer and die in one of the most painful ways imaginable. And then verse 19 of John 21 tells us, after saying all this, Jesus said to him, follow me. Follow me, even though it will lead to suffering. Not whether, but when. Follow me, even though it will lead to death. Take up your cross and follow me, even though it will lead to inevitable discomfort, inevitable pain, and inevitable hardship. Follow me. Just think about that. Think about what type of impact that would have had on Peter. How do you cope? How do you function with that reality 
that future expectation hanging over you? How do you go through life and keep yourself thinking right? How do you live life for the glory of God and keep yourself following Jesus in the face of absolutely unavoidable, inevitable suffering that could strike you at any moment? That's a question that more than just Peter had to face. It's a question that all of us have to face as those who have been joined to Jesus And Peter knew the answer to that question, and he's going to teach it to us this morning. And he knew it more than just intellectually, he knew it experientially. He had to live out the answer. Peter knew how to keep following Jesus even in the face of inevitable suffering, because that's exactly what he had to do each and every day that he woke up. Is today going to be the day? And that's important for us to remember when we read this letter of 1 Peter Second to Jesus himself, Peter is uniquely qualified to tell us how to glorify God every day in the face of inevitable suffering. And what does Peter say? How do we do that? Well, he said it ever since chapter 2, look to Jesus. He wrote in chapter 2, verse 21, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. That's who Peter kept his eyes on. He kept his eyes on Jesus. And that's how you glorify God in the face of inevitable trials and hardships that come to believers in this life. Look to Jesus. Don't sink into the stormy chaos and unrest of this world. Stand above the waves where Christ stands and keep your eyes firmly fixed above on him. Remember where he went. Remember where he is. Remember what he has done and follow him. This is how we glorify God in the face of inevitable suffering. Look to Jesus and follow closely after him. Don't let yourself get distracted by the storms of this world and fall into its chaos. Keep your eyes fixed on Christ. And when you do, then Peter wants us to know that you'll partake in four glorious realities that are true of Christ. Four glorious realities that Peter experienced in the face of inevitable suffering. And four realities that God wants us to participate in as well. We've already looked at the first two. When we commit to doing good and following closely after Jesus, no matter the cost, we share in first the purpose of Christ's suffering. We saw that in verse 18 when Peter wrote, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? That he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. When we follow closely after Christ, even our suffering has a redemptive purpose. Second, we share in the power of Christ's spirit. That's what Peter mentioned last time in verses 19 through 20 when he writes that in the spirit Christ went and proclaimed to the spirits now in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. When we follow closely after Jesus, the same divine spirit that powerfully preached righteousness through Noah to his depraved generation is the same spirit that powerfully preaches through us to our generation as well. And though like Noah, we will suffer. And though like Noah, we will be in the minority by his spirit, Christ may also, like Noah, use us as elect exiles to save even just eight souls before the door of salvation closes. 
which is the whole reason why you and I are still here on earth as elect exiles. It is to bear witness to the truth of Christ so that some might be saved by God's grace. Well, that brings us to the final two points of this passage that we're going to look at this morning, which are these. When we commit to doing good and following Jesus, no matter the cost, we share in the picture of Christ's salvation. That's in verse 21. And we share in the preeminence of Christ's splendor in verse 22. So the picture of Christ's salvation and the preeminence of Christ's splendor. This is our glorious share in Christ that always makes it better to suffer with Jesus than to sin alongside this world. So with that in mind, if you would please stand with me out of reverence for the word of God as I read our passage this morning of 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. The Apostle Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes these words for us today. For Christ also suffered... Once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water." Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. This is the word of God who keeps us from shame by fixing our eyes on his commandments. Let's pray. Father, we fix our eyes on you this morning. We ask that you would teach us your word, the implanted word which is able to save souls. Father, we ask that your spirit would accompany the teaching of your word as you have promised with power and with conviction and with encouragement to each and every individual here this morning. Father, I pray that Christ's glory would be seen, that your truth would be known, that your people would respond in faith, and that the lost would come to salvation by your grace. Father, help us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling of those who are now joined with the one who is above all. Give us grace to heed your word and follow you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So after Peter reveals to us our share in the purpose of Christ's suffering and the power of Christ's spirit, he reminds us of how suffering for doing good corresponds with how we also share in the picture of Christ's salvation. This is in verse 21. In other words, entering into suffering should not surprise us at all when we become followers of Jesus because we actually entered into a picture of suffering when we first trusted in Jesus. And that's seen here in verse 21 where Peter writes, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of 
Jesus Christ. Now, there's a lot of misunderstanding about this passage, but it is glorious when you come to understand the truth of it. So let's get started. As Peter, as, and Peter begins it all by saying this, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. If that phrase doesn't immediate, if that phrase immediately causes you to cringe this morning, congratulations. You have learned one of the first and most important principles of effective Bible study, which is this, understanding the part in light of the whole. See, truth is always consistent with itself. It is never, uh, it is never self-contradictory. It always agrees with itself. That's why you can take one passage of Scripture and another passage of Scripture and another and another and another, and you can recognize the connections, you can put them all together, and you can create a unified understanding out of all of it. And that's what I attempt to show you every week through the cross-references that we look at, that this passage and this truth not only stands by itself, but it also is unified and amplified by how it connects to everything else in the pages of Scripture also. We can take note not only of what's here in this passage— but also how it connects to everything else in Scripture. Do you know why we as Christians can do that? Why all of us can be students in the science of theology? It's because Scripture is truth, and truth does not contradict itself. Which is why many of us inwardly cringe when we hear a phrase like, baptism now saves you. Because at first glance, it seems to contradict what we've read elsewhere in Scripture. Like in Luke 8, 12, where Jesus says, believe and be saved. Or in Acts 16, 31, where we read, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Or even what our own author Peter says over in Acts chapter 2, verse 21, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Okay, so which one is it, Peter? Do you call on the name of the Lord to be saved or do you get baptized to get saved? Which one is it? So we're facing two options here this morning. Either you can take the easy way out and say, well, Scripture just contradicts itself, and therefore is not truth. Or what we at first glance assume Peter's saying here isn't actually what he's saying here, and therefore deserves a closer look, which is in fact exactly what's going on here. Does this passage seem contradictory to you, to what Scripture says elsewhere? If you think so, then let's take a closer look. First, let's take a look at the word here. This word baptism or baptisma in the Greek literally means immersion. So that's what the word baptism means. So translated literally, Peter is simply saying immersion now saves you. So the real question is, what type of immersion is Peter referring to here? Well, for that answer, let's take a closer look at the context. Has he talked about anything recently? We've looked at the word. Now let's look at the context. What type of immersion or baptism is Peter referring to here in verse 19? What picture of Christ's salvation has Peter just given that he's referring back to? Well, you might assume that it's water baptism due to water being mentioned in verse 20, but that's not actually correct. In fact, if you notice, the eight persons who were saved in verse 20 were not saved because they went into the water. Think about Noah's flood. It is those who went into the water that what? Perished. Exactly. The eight persons who were saved in verse 20 were saved because they went into something that was not water. They went into something called a what? Ark. They went into an ark. 
That's even the phraseology that Peter uses in verse 20. The ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. The water they went through. It was the ark that they went into. So the immersion that Peter's talking about here in verse 21 is not about going into any type of water that can save you. He's just giving you a picture about how going into a certain type of ark can save you. In fact, if you look at the usage of this word, it becomes even more obvious what Peter is talking about. So after looking closely at the word and closely at the context, now let's take a closer look at the usage of the word baptisma. This word baptisma occurs 22 times in the New Testament. Five times it refers to Christ's sufferings. Six times it refers to a person's physical baptism in water. And 11 times, half of all occurrences in the New Testament, it refers to a believer's spiritual immersion into Christ Jesus. And if you look carefully, that's exactly how it's being described here in this verse as well. If you leave out all the qualifying phrases and just look at the core structure of this sentence, Peter is saying, immersion now saves you through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. See, the immersion that Peter is talking about here in verse 21 is not an immersion that involves water. It's an immersion that involves the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is the immersion, and this is the baptism that saves you. It is being baptized. It is being immersed. It is being spiritually plunged into and protected by the death and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the baptism. This is the immersion that Peter's talking about that corresponds to the experience and the picture of Noah and his family. So I want you to think about it this morning. Think about what happened with Noah Judgment was about to fall on the whole world because of sin. And yet eight people were saved because they went into something. They became immersed in an ark. And so when judgment came, that judgment fell on the ark, not on Noah and his family. Why? Because they were safe and they were protected within the ark. They were immersed in it. This is the picture of Christ's salvation that we share in. And this is the experience that Peter is referring to here in verse 21. It is the immersion of Noah and his family inside the ark. And Peter tells us here that our immersion into Christ Jesus corresponds to this. So think about it. Judgment was coming upon us. Because of our sin, we are just as deserving to die as the depraved generation in Noah's day because of our sin. And yet, through faith in Christ Jesus, we have been immersed into him, him who is the Savior, Jesus Christ. And so the judgment and the condemnation that should be ours falls on Christ, not on us. Why? Because we are safe and protected within Jesus, we are immersed in him. So Peter's not talking about a physical baptism that saves you here. He's talking about a spiritual baptism that saves you of becoming united to the saving Jesus. And that is why Peter immediately qualifies his statement here by saying baptism which corresponds to this now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. See, the baptism that Peter's talking about is not something physical or external, like a baptism that can remove dirt from your body. He's talking about a baptism that is spiritual and internal, an immersion into Christ Jesus that, as Peter puts it, is an appeal to God for a good conscience. 
And as we talked about several weeks ago, back in verse 16, a good conscience is a conscience that is free of guilt and condemnation. Now that word appeal is a secular term that was used in that ancient culture, and it refers to agreeing to the terms and conditions of a contract at the moment of agreement. So for example, the contract would ask something like, do you agree to the terms and conditions of this contract, and do you bind yourself to observe it? And when you said yes, that was an appeal, that was a pledge of agreement. And the moment that appeal was made, you entered into the benefits of that agreement. So here, Peter's saying that God wants to enter into a covenant, covenantal relationship with us. And the stated benefit of that relationship with God here is receiving salvation and a good conscience. A conscience that is free from all guilt and condemnation. Those are the benefits that God wants to give you. And we receive all the benefits of that relationship. We enter into that relationship when we appeal to God for a good conscience. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. See, we don't appeal to God for a good conscience through a water baptism. As if that's the merit that gives us a right relationship with God. We enter into a relationship with God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It is upon the basis of Christ and what he did for us through his life and death and verified through his resurrection that secures for us a good conscience and a right relationship with God. All we must do is appeal to God for that forgiveness, a plead with God for the forgiveness of our sins upon the merits and mercy of Christ. And if we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, we're told in scripture, we will be what? Saved. So what saves us? It's not water baptism. It is immersion into the saving person in the ark of Jesus Christ, in whom we safely pass from death and judgment into new life and blessing. So what saves us? It is not some external ceremony or observance, but it is a heart that longs to be delivered from the crushing judgment and guilt of sin and longs to be forgiven. Is that you this morning? Do you want to be delivered from the wrath to come? Do you want to be forgiven of your sins? Do you want to pass out of judgment into a new and eternal life beneath God's favor? And as Romans 6 verses 3 through 4 so plainly says, be baptized into Christ Jesus. He is the ark of safety. Believe in him and what he has done and you will be saved. And again, tying this back to Peter's main point, this is why it's better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil because it shows that you are in the saving ark of Jesus Christ. Think of Noah and his family. They experienced, to a lesser degree, the storms that their saving ark went through. I'm sure it was not a crystal clear, easy journey, right? But they were nevertheless not touched by the judgment that fell outside that ark. So it is for those in Christ. We experience, to a lesser degree, the sufferings that Christ went through. We suffer with him, as Romans 8, 17 says. And so being immersed in Christ, we experience, to a lesser degree, the sufferings that Christ went through, but we are not touched by the judgment that fell on Christ and that falls on those who are outside of him. Being immersed in Jesus, we are safe and secure from all alarms. And when suffering for good rocks our boat... It just reminds us of what boat, praise God, we're on. We're on the ark of Christ. And as Romans 8 verse 1 says, there is therefore no now, now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. 
Hallelujah. We share in that. We share in the picture of Christ's salvation. We are in him. We are in his life, in his suffering, in his death, in his resurrection. And as we'll see next, we are in his glory. So the reason why it is better to suffer rather than to sin is because when we follow closely after Jesus, we share in the purpose of Christ's suffering, the power of Christ's spirit, the picture of Christ's salvation, and then finally we share in the preeminence of Christ's splendor in verse 22. Peter says here that Jesus has done something. This one who suffered has done something. He didn't end in suffering. It didn't end in death. This one who has suffered has gone into heaven. And is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. This returns us back to the main thrust of what Peter's been teaching us. Peter said back in verse 17, it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Why? Verse 18, for Jesus also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Christ is the ultimate proof that it is better to suffer for doing what is good than to sin. Why? Because even though Jesus suffered more than any other human who ever lived, going from where he was to where he went, even the immense suffering that he went through is not worth to be compared to the glory that was to come for him. That's what kept Jesus going, in fact. That's how he was able to endure and face a life of inevitable suffering because he knew what was coming. As Hebrews 12, verse 2 teaches, it was for the joy that was set before him that Jesus endured the cross. He looked beyond the suffering to the preeminence of the glory that would be his. And that's what Peter had to learn to do as well and all those who follow Jesus. Knowing that he could die at any moment in a horrible process of crucifixion, how did Peter face each and every day in the face of inevitable suffering? Answer, he looked beyond this world and looked to the glories that were to come. This is how he endured in triumph to the end. And this is exactly what Peter is teaching us as followers of Jesus to do as well. If you want to glorify God and if you want to reach the lost around you by reflecting his saving goodness in the midst of the inevitable sufferings that will come your way, if you don't want evangelism to be sacrificed the moment your comfort goes away, if you want to continue to glorify God and reach the lost for Jesus Christ, come what may, then the only way that you're going to be able to remain faithful to that mission and do that is by looking beyond all of this that you see with your eyes. It's going to come by turning off cable news. It's going to come by shutting down your laptop. It's going to come by putting away your phone. It's going to come by opening up your Bible. It's going to come by fixing your eyes on Jesus. And it's going to come by looking to the glory that is to come, to the preeminence of Christ's splendor that you will one day share in. We are to walk above the waves, not plunge into them. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus, for this Christ who suffered now, Peter says, has gone into heaven and is right now at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Beloved, there is no higher place of splendor and preeminence than at the right hand of God. It is the highest place of highest honor, highest power, highest glory, highest authority. And though the world today, the world that you're living in, mocks and treats his name as nothing, Jesus is right now at the right hand of God, seated in heaven. 
And there, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him, Jesus, our Savior and Lord, rules over it all. Including, by the way, everyone that Peter has mentioned in this letter so far. Christ rules over emperors and dictators. He rules over tyrants and anarchists. He rules over slave owners and employers. He rules over spouses and parents. He rules over every single human institution on the face of the globe, and he is not concerned. He is not anxious. He is not worried. He rules. He rules over every single institution on the face of this globe. Christ is king. And he rules over all. And we forget that. As Ephesians 1, 20 through 21 states, God has seated him at the right, at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and all authority and all power and all dominion and over every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. This is majesty. This is glory. This is wondrous authority. Are you reflecting this reality, believer? in the way that you're responding to the issues of this world? Are those around you seeing in you a faith and a confidence in knowing this Christ who rules above all? Because Jesus is Lord, possessing all majesty, all glory, all authority. And one day, miracle of miracles, we're going to share in all of this. Though we will surely share in Christ's sufferings now, Peter wants us to know and he wants us to remember that we just as surely we will share in Christ's glory. One day soon we're going to go into heaven where Christ, the anchor of our soul, is gone. And we will sit at the right hand of God where Christ sits and the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath our feet. And we will be with him. We will share in his, we, we share in his spiritual blessings now. One day we're going to share in his infinite glory forever, soon. We will be with him. And the call of Peter is then why look at the mud when you can look at the sunrise? So listen again to the words of Romans 8 verse 17. If we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we what? Suffer with him. In order that we may also, what? Be glorified with him. Peter knew this. He knew. He saw this from Jesus as an example, and he heard it from Jesus for himself many, many times. The principle, first comes the cross, then comes the crown. How many times must Peter have told told himself this when he woke up in the morning not knowing what would come that day? First comes the cross, but then comes the crown. First comes the cross, but then comes the crown. Again, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. This saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. And if we endure, then we will also reign with him. First the cross, but then the crown. 
First the cross, but then the crown. And that's why it's better. That's why it's better, always better, to suffer with Jesus than to sin, even for a moment alongside this world. Because when we're with Jesus, we share. We share not only in the purpose of his suffering, we share not only in the power of his spirit, we share not only in the picture of his salvation, we share in the preeminence of his glory and of his splendor. Believer, I want you to remember this morning, as you're enduring hardships and trials and pains and anxieties and cares, remember, it will be worth it all. All of it. All of it. Anything he asks of you, anything he takes from you, it will be worth it all when you see Jesus. And this is what Peter wants us to remember as he transitions here from how we as elect exiles respond to the world to where he's going to talk, how we as elect exiles respond to trials. This is how we live for the glory of God in the midst of this world and in the midst of suffering. It's by remembering that to be with Jesus is worth it all. It's always worth it. So just follow him. Get your eyes off of the circumstances of this world and follow Jesus Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Be subject. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Just take up your cross, no matter the cost, and follow him because it will be worth it all. First comes the cross, but then comes the crown. First the cross, but then the crown. This is why it's better. This is why it's better to suffer with Jesus than to sin with this world because when we follow after Jesus, we share in the purpose of his suffering. We share in the power of his spirit. We share in the picture of his salvation. And we will share in the preeminence of his splendor. So this is what God's called us today. Look to Christ. Look to glory. And do hard things for Christ's glory. Beloved, this is how we glorify God and reach the lost around us in the face of inevitable suffering. It is by reflecting the saving example of Christ, and it is by remembering our glorious share in Christ, first the cross, but then the crown, and with my Savior all the way. In closing, I think of the words of that old hymn, Crowned with Honor, and it fits perfectly with what Peter wrote here concerning our share in Christ, and I wanted to finish by reading this hymn. The hymn goes like this. Speaking first of Christ and then of us. The head that once was crowned with thorns is crowned with glory now. A royal diadem adorns the mighty victor's brow. The highest place that heaven affords is his by sovereign right. The King of kings and Lord of lords, he reigns in glory bright. The joy of all who dwell below I dwell above the joy of all below, to whom he manifests his love and grants his name to know. To them, the cross, with all its shame, with all its grace, is given. Their name, an everlasting name, and their joy, the joy of heaven. Lift up your eyes, beloved. Look to Jesus. Follow closely after him. Remember his purpose, his power, his picture, and his preeminence that you share in. And don't lose heart, because in due season we will reap if we faint not. In the midst of your suffering, remember 
your glorious Christ and your glorious share in him. This is the word of God from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22, which I now commit to your further study and your faithful obedience in the fervent care of one another until Christ, the ark of our salvation, returns. To that end, let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the example of Jesus. We thank you that the entire Christian life simply a call to look to him and follow. Father, we thank you that he has shown us since chapter 2, verse 12, how to follow him in life. We thank you that he's going to begin to show us at the end of this book how to follow him in suffering. And we thank you, Father, that you've already laid in front of us the glorious truth that we'll look at the very end, that he's going to show us how to follow him all the way to glory. So, Father, help us to be faithful in walking that path. Help us to deny ourselves take up our cross daily and follow Jesus. Help us to cast down the idols of comfort, of peer pressure, of opinions, of the fear of man, of bitterness and unforgiveness, of obstinance and rebellion. Help us to cast down every rival idol of our hearts and minds and help us to simply follow Jesus, no matter the cost. Deliver us from the spirit of pragmatism. Give to us a spirit of zeal in following Jesus so that the world around us might see a Christ who rules above all, above every power, above every authority, above every comfort, above every fear, a Christ who both demands and develops reverence and obedience in those who belong to him. May we show this transforming grace of Jesus Christ to a world around us that needs to know the power of Jesus, the ark of our salvation. Give us grace to do this this week, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.